Good morning. Talking about the winds of change and the changes that Jesus predicted will come to pass when he sends the Spirit on the far side of his uh, burial and resurrection from the dead. And as we'll see, the Spirit will address the subject of sin, righteousness, and judgment. These are the foundations of civilization. Sin, righteousness, and judgment dictates what's wrong, what's right, and who's guilty. Jesus warns his disciples that his spirit would continue to do the work that he himself, Jesus, began, which was to turn the rudiments of culture and civilization on their head. Uh, Look with me at John chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 through 11, and we'll focus on this this Friday night and next Sunday. John 16, 1 through 11, Jesus is speaking to his closest followers. He said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour, their hour comes, you will remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. To alter sin, righteousness, and judgment in Israel at the time is like taking a swing at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in America. They are cardinal tenets of their civilization. And those to and through whom the Spirit introduces these changes, uh, those who speak forth the changes in sin and righteousness and judgment, scrambling the way that their culture defined these things, is going to be reviled and revisit, resisted. Um, they will experience conflict. Um, again, look what it says in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus says, I didn't say these things to you because I was with you in the beginning. Jesus didn't tell his disciples about the inevitability of their persecution. And it wasn't because he was afraid to make them afraid. The reason why he didn't tell the disciples, because he was with them. And while Jesus is with them, he's the one with the target on his back. The disciples are not going to get directly in the line of fire. Jesus is going to take the bullets. 
And so he didn't need to tell them about persecution, again, because it was going to hit him and not them. But now that he is going, he has told them, you have been with me from the beginning, and now you're going to be the ones that are going to testify. And when you testify concerning the things that the Spirit will remind you to testify about, you will have the targets on your back. And now I need to tell you what's going to happen. That's Jesus' rationale. Only when he departs is there a problem for his disciples. They will become the chief spokespersons of the word of God. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. To fall away literally is to fall into a snare. You know what a snare is? Where you bait someone. And, you know, these very crude, rudimentary ones is a stick and a box. And depending on what you want to catch, you put the bait inside the enclosure that will be tempting to whatever you're trying to catch. And then you're there with a string. And the string is attached to the stick. And then if you wait long enough, maybe something will crawl in and you pull it. And then that you're snaring that which you are trying to capture. To snare is to be trapped. It's to be enclosed with something, within something, that you can't get away from. What kind of trap is Jesus talking about? He says, I've told you these things because I don't want you to get snared. Now, he told them that they were going to be persecuted, so the snare is not simply being persecuted. They'll be put in jail, but that's not the snare. The snare is something else, and he has to remind them of what's going to happen, or when something happens, they'll get trapped in, in, in what? It says they will put you, they will put you out of the synagogues. In first century Judaism, the synagogue was the center of social and commercial life. Everything happened in the synagogue. It's where you made business decisions, it's where you interfaced with friends, it's, it's where your kids were educated. It was really the center of the community, and to be put out of the synagogue in first century Judaism is to bring social, economic, and spiritual disaster on yourself. And if you are a parent and your kid is excommunicated from the synagogue, it brings tremendous shame on your family. Or if you're an adult that is put out of the synagogue, it puts tremendous shame on your extended family. Becoming a Christian in first century Israel was tantamount to committing financial suicide. Um, again, we've talked about the fact in Israel at that time there's, there was a theocracy. So theocracy means there's absolutely no separation between church and state. None. Zero, zip. It's kind of like Islamic states where the military police presence serves those who are the religious leaders. That's the way it was in Israel at the time. The police served the church. And so if you didn't do something that the government slash God both melded together, indicated then you had the police to answer to. Um, to become a Christian at that time, since it was out of bounds, if you determined to become a Christian as a Jew in first century Israel, you were deciding to become a criminal. 
and you would be put out of the synagogue. You would bring your family into tremendous shame. You would expose yourself to potential. They would grab your field, and they would grab your houses sometimes. Sometimes you would be put in prison. Uh, Jesus warns his followers that conversion would place one directly in harm's way. In fact, those who do so will not be snidely whiplash, you know, twisting their twisting the mustache, you know, diabolical. <laughs> they will be the devout ones. They will think they're offering service to God. And they will, again, put individuals in harm's way and and give thanks to God. Thank you, thank you for using me to remove this. So this was all largely the case in terms of what it meant to... Um, to make a decision for Christ until about the 4th century when Rome made Christianity the state religion. Interestingly, at that point, a lot of things changed. For the better? From one perspective. But what ended up happening, you couldn't move up the ladder then in Rome without becoming a Christian. If you wanted to gain an authority and move up the ranks, you had to become a Christian now. And things flipped during really over a 40-year span of time. Not hard to see this, what impact this would have had. Just, just to throw a, a stone at this anyways. Um, you understand how that would have changed the whole experience of baptism. If you be, were baptized in Israel, you basically were committing financial suicide. But then in Rome, when you were baptized, it was you were on the fast lane. Again, what do we do with that? I'm not sure we do with that, but we can get a sense, though, and this is what I want us to do, get a sense for how different it would have been to become a Christian in the first and second centuries, where to do so really was to put yourself in harm's way. Conversion lost its teeth. Anyways, the the cumulative aspect of the loss of neighborhood and livelihood would be devastating. You know, in the beginning... The Christian attaboys would have felt pretty good, and they did. Christian attaboys, and again, they're appropriate. You made a decision, right? Good job. Hey, way to go. That's, that's, was good initially. Come over the house. And, but then one year turned into two and three, and famines and persecutions. And now you have to leave Jerusalem, and you go out into the Roman Empire, and you're a Jew, but you're a Christian, and you're a Christian but not a Gentile, and so they don't really have a place to go, and now you can't get a good job, and your kids are now growing, and they experience the downside of your decision. Anyways, it, 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 became, it became old pretty quick. I told you about a girl, I think her name was Linda, at the um, University of Pennsylvania that was 60% Jewish. I told you, I remember she was a blonde-haired girl from Florida, and I was involved and a Christian student movement at that time. And I remember hearing about this Jewish girl who professed her faith in Christ. And we thought that was kind of neat. Um, I think she went home for spring break and was told, you really don't need to come home. And they had buried her in effigy. They had had a funeral service. And they got a casket and they put it in the ground. And they said to this girl, you're dead to us. It was one thing to receive high fives during the school year. It was another thing for her to face a future without family, 
without financial assistance, and she ended up recanting. Too much of a too much of a deal, and she walked away from Christianity back into. And so the point is that Jesus says to them, when all this happens to you, what's going to happen? You're going to think you did something wrong because everybody's going to turn against you. And that's going to snare you into thinking that they speak for God and they don't. Jesus said, I am telling you first century what was happening so that when these traps are snared, you will understand that this is not from me. This is not from the Father. You're going to experience these things. Otherwise, they would fall under the persecution and not only feel the pain, but feel guilt as well. Would you, would you agree? It's one thing to experience suffering. It's another thing to feel guilty for experiencing it as well. That's a double load. And sometimes you get that from people. When you talk about, I'm going through this and that and the other, and what you end up getting sometimes is not just not really sympathy, but, well, you could have avoided that if. And so you walk out with not just pain, but with the sense that I didn't need to experience it. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. He says to them, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Um, he says, it's going to be tough. You're going to have targets on your back, and there's going to be conflict. Look what it says in John 15, 20 and 21. Jesus says, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Their hearts are filled with sorrow, and when Good Friday comes, Great Friday, as Jay called it, um, they will be running for their lives. Um, well, here's a question. When Jesus says this, he tells them they're going to experience conflict. These guys and the women who are part of their entourage, they will need to bear witness when Jesus goes. What do you give somebody who's going to face trouble? And they're going to need to have very strong conviction, strength to be able to speak. What do you give them? What do you give them? If you know you're going into a difficult stretch, what do you need? If it's going to be difficult, you know it. Um, you know what? Jesus promises to give them the Spirit. And what he indicates is through the Spirit, he will give them conviction. Give them conviction. Uh, look what it says in verses 7 to 11 of John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the helper is another word for the spirit. The helper is somebody who literally the word is, is translated elsewhere, encourager. It's para alongside and kaleo, which is to call. Literally, this word is one who calls someone alongside. Um, and influences that person to continue on the road that's truly best for them. That's what an encourager does. It's not somebody who evaluates you or holds you accountable. It's somebody who goes in the same direction that you're going and keeps you on the road when your legs get tired. That's the kind of help the Spirit gives. It's not a there, there, you know, just pull aside. It's come on, 
Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Walk through this. I'm with you. Encourage. It's like a coach, somebody who keeps somebody going. That's the in, that's the sense for the word translated helper. Um, says, I will, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. By the way, when Jesus puts his finger on what does the influence of the Spirit feel like? This is what Jesus identifies it as, as a coach, somebody who keeps you going, somebody who doesn't play games with what's going to happen in the future. Says there's going to be some tough stuff coming, but I'm going to be with you and I will keep you on the road. That's, that's the sense of the Spirit. The Spirit is not primarily somebody who convicts of sin. And says, that was wrong. That was wrong. He's not somebody who throws, like a referee who throws penalty flags. No, bad thought, bad thought, bad action. The spirit is an encourager. That's literally what he's described as, the encourager. It says, uh, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Conviction. What's conviction? There's two, really, conviction has two different meanings. Two different meanings. I looked it up on that thing where you can just type in the name on a computer on a Mac and put it up in, on the right-hand side. It has a spyglass. And so conviction, and then you hit the return, and then there it is. And this is the definition I got. Uh, a declaration that someone is guilty of a criminal offense. Okay, I have. If you've been in jail, you've got a conviction. That means somebody found you guilty. That's one definition of conviction. Conviction is also a firmly held belief or opinion. He's a person of conviction. doesn't mean that he's a person who's been charged with a crime. It means he's a person who has strong beliefs, and conviction means both things. Interestingly, both of these things will be something that the Spirit will prompt. The Spirit will find somebody guilty. The Spirit will also make someone who's create a sense in someone of strong beliefs and convictions. Um, the former, the sense that someone is guilty of an offense, the spirit will apply to the world. We'll find the word guilty. That's the first sense of conviction. But with respect to the followers now, not he will, the spirit will not say guilty, Guilty, but what the Spirit will provide to followers is there will be something that will cause followers to say, Oh, I see. Oh, that's what that means. And so it will cause convictions to become deepened. Not you're wrong, but you're right. And a sense of strength of being able to understand that. Some have thought that the Spirit's task is to prove the world prove to the world its own error, but it says that can't be because it says the world doesn't really operate on the frequency of the Spirit. Here's what he says earlier in John. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. So, the Spirit is not going to convince the world of guilt because the world doesn't least listen to what the Spirit says. And when we think about the world, I think Jesus is thinking not about the secular manifestation of world, but the sacred one. Again, at that time, 
in a theocracy, the world was the church. And again, it's not throwing a rock at Judaism in specific, but Jesus comes to change the definition of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he's going to pull it out of what Jews understood as those things, and some Christians as well. Even though the Spirit has changed things, a lot of Christians think like Jews did. And we really don't have much of an excuse to do that because Jesus has been pretty clear that sin has changed, righteousness has changed, and judgment has changed. Jesus really has ushered in the winds of change. Sin doesn't mean what it meant in the Old Testament. Righteousness doesn't mean what it meant in the Old Testament. Judgment doesn't mean what it meant in the Old Testament. How can you say that? Because the Spirit became the winds of change. These things have changed. And being aware of how they're changed is central to understanding what it means to be a Christian. Um, To convict literally is to prove somebody wrong. At the trial of Jesus, the world at that time, convicted Jesus of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And you know what the Spirit's going to do? It's going to expose that trial and the judgment on Jesus as a sham. And he's going to convince someone of what really happened at the trial of Jesus and in general. Why didn't people accept him? What happened? Why did they see him and look at him crossways when he was such a giving, loving person? He made some people irritated. Okay, um, That's what the Spirit is going to do. So here's, here's the Where is this courtroom going to take place? If the Spirit is not going to convince the world, he's not going to sweep into government. You're not going to walk into the president's office. Maybe if the president's a Christian or, or Senate. But the Spirit is not really going to interface with the powers that be. The Spirit's going to interface with disciples. And he's going to prove the world wrong in the minds of disciples. In the minds of disciples. Oh, I get it. I understand what happened. They thought sin was that, and it's this. They thought righteousness was that, and it's this. They thought Jesus was, and it's this. It, there will, what Jesus says, it will promote clarity in the minds of the disciples, and they're going to go out, and they're going to say, no, you got it wrong. What the Spirit's going to do is give the disciples the courage of their convictions so that they could unflinchingly, clearly, and confidently talk about the truth, lovingly. What is it that causes us to stutter and stammer relative to our faith? All of us do it. At some point, doubts do. We're not clear. We're not deeply clear about what the good news is. We get confused about sin and righteousness and judgment. That lack of clarity leads to a lack of courage. You know what the Spirit is going to do? 
promote clarity. And that clarity is going to promote courage. The ability to say things, again, lovingly, but clearly, and to see things clearly. Um, this is going to take some time. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The focus of sin is going to shift. It's going to shift. In first century Judaism, as in the Old Testament, sin was about what? It was about behaviors. It was about adultery and murder. It was about lying and coveting. It's going to be a change. What's going to happen? The spirit is going to shift sin. Sin is going to move from an action problem to a thought problem. It's going to move from a behavioral issue to a belief issue. Isn't that what it says? Concerning sin, because they do not, because they do not believe. So the focus of accountability relative to this change, sin is going to shift. And what that means, God really is not looking at what you do. He's looking at why you do what you do. He's not looking at your attitudes. He's looking at your thoughts, your opinions about, your thoughts about him, your, the way you think about him, and your attitudes, the responses to God based on your thoughts about him. Again, I want to be clear. God is good. He really is. And we get mixed up sometimes. We focus so much on our own behavior and on what we do or don't do wrong. Guess what? Faith is not going to grow by looking at yourself. Faith will not grow if you focus on your behavior. It's just not going to happen. Now, you might be dutiful, and you might really force yourself to do things but God's not looking at what you do. He's looking at why you do what you do. You say, Mike, what should I do? Reverse your gaze and glance. Glance at yourself and gaze at him. That's what the Spirit is going to do. He's going to talk to you about who the Father is. And as you tune into that, it will change how you act. It will also change why you act. Some of us, we grow, we grow up to obey because we're afraid not to. That's been changed. It's been changed. It doesn't work anymore. The fear of judgment is not what the Spirit does to move people to change. You know what the Spirit does? He doesn't frighten to death misdeeds. Now, this, is obedience important? Yeah, obedience is important. It's how. How does the Spirit promote obedience? The Spirit will not frighten to death misdeeds. You know what he will do? Not frighten them to death, he will father them to death. I remember early in my Christian life, I was at a prayer thing, and we were told, okay, go confess your sins. I'm, I was raised, I'm a professional at confessing sins. I did it every week, week in and week out. I was good at it. And so I was 
I was, I was there, and so he told us to go, and I went by myself, and I started to, hey, this is easy. I told you this before, but I, was, I really did. Took out a piece of paper, was writing. And just with smoke coming off of the, you know, it just, it was, it was just bionic. It was, you know, and there was a sense of, um, you asked me to, because I did, I asked God, God, show me my sin. And then, and then there was a thought. I don't, again, some of you, I don't have, God doesn't talk to me. But there really, it really was, there was something that hit my mind back here somewhere. You asked me to show you your sin, and then you didn't let me do it. And literally, I really did. Some of these things, you know, you embellish stories, you know, evangelistic. But it really wasn't so. I, I, I put my pen down. And I said, I'm not going to write anything down until I think it's from you. Hmm. I sat back, and it was about 30 seconds later that I started, yeah, I started to cry. I'm acting like an abandoned child. Were there actions that I was doing wrong? Why? Because I was acting like an abandoned child. I had to do everything myself, and I have no one for me, and I was afraid. And that was my sin, and that's a belief-based sin. And, and then in seeing it, things shifted. And that's the kind of the winds of change that the, the Spirit will bring about um, Focus of sin shame shifts from belief to from behavior from behavior to belief, from actions to thoughts and attitudes. I, I found this quote in the bottom. It's on your worship folder. I really liked it. It talks about the world's deepest misery. The world's deepest misery and loneliness do not consist in its moral imperfection. The world's misery is not because it disobeys, because it's immoral. It says but it, and it's an estrangement from God and its refusal to allow itself to be called out of that condition by the one whom God has sent for that purpose. God sent Jesus to clarify what God is like and his spirit to convince us about what God is like so that we could proclaim it because it's our connection with the Father that's primary and behavior is secondary. That's hard for us because we don't always understand about the winds of change. His spirit will change the way we look at God. It says when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. Um, Jesus said, even after Jesus in John 12, 37, had done all these things, miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Um, there was something that happened, and we'll talk about it next week. When Jesus said, there were two kinds of sins in Judaism, two kinds. One could be forgiven and one couldn't. Within Judaism, one kind of sin could be forgiven and one kind of sin could not. The sin that could be forgiven was unintentional sins. You either didn't know it was wrong or you knew it was wrong and you didn't know that this specific action was a violation. Either one, unintentional. Unintentional sins were forgivable. Then you could cut the throat of the animal, you could give the dove, you could do all these sacrifices. The one that could not be forgiven was intentional sin. Intentional sins, and again, that gets overlaid. That's why I'm really glad there's a new covenant. Because under the old covenant, intentional sins cannot be covered. I don't care how many animals you kill. 
I don't care how perfect the lamb is. Intentional sins cannot be forgiven within Judaism. And unintentional. When Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. What kind of sin is Jesus forgiving? Unintentional. And when Jesus rises from the dead, will belief in Jesus be unintentional anymore? No, it won't, because he has to be God. Before he rises from the dead, he's making all these messianic claims. If we're Jewish and we see him, do we know for sure he's God? Do we? No. He's done miracles, but I don't know. I don't know. It befuddles me. When he rises from the dead, that seals it, folks. Seals it. Jesus is God in human skin. And now belief in him is no longer unintentional. Rose from the dead. Jesus went on to talk about belief as he was saying these things, John 8, John 8, many, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus talked about belief. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Believe in Jesus? Here's what happened here. There's a bunch of Jews that believed in him. And here's what he said. Well, look what he says. Many believed in him. That does it, right? They believed in him and they're in. When belief to a Jew, look what he says. So Jesus told the Jews who had believed him, if you hold, guard my word, you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me tell you how it worked in first century Judaism. You bound yourself to a rabbi if you were a seeker. You sat at the feet of that rabbi. You learned from that rabbi. That's what it meant to receive Jesus. meant to receive him as a rabbi at whose feet you would sit. And you would direct your question, what's God like? What's righteousness like? What's sin like? What's judgment like? You would sit at the feet of the rabbi. That's what it meant to receive. You remained within the influence of the rabbi. Again, we talk about how somebody becomes a follower of Christ today and talks about receiving Jesus. I remember I had an experience of receiving Christ by prayer. That receiving can lead to remaining. It can lead to remaining, but it doesn't always do so. That's why I would say remain is the Christian word, not receive. Again, some of us have understandings. We remember a time we received Christ, and the fact that you're still here, you're still remaining. Some of you can't remember a time where you received Christ. It, it was more of an evolution of being followed. Do you, do you need to be able to point to a date to be a Christian? No, you just need to be remaining. 
Are you remaining? That's what he says. That's what it means to receive, is to receive Christ, not in prayer, but as a first century Jew would receive a rabbi at whose feet you sit. Um, says, yeah, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, believed he was who he was, and sat at his feet he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving doesn't necessarily lead to remaining. Remaining doesn't always begin with receiving. It's an ongoing process. Um, ask the worship team to come up. Belief begins the process. What God looks at now is not what you do, but why you do it. And here's what God would continue to make room in your mind for who Jesus is and what Jesus says about the Father. That's what the Spirit will bring. The Spirit is not going to point a finger at you and say, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. As you think about God, what the Spirit will correct is not the things that you're doing, but the things that you're thinking. He will correct those thoughts because thoughts lead to attitudes, lead to actions. God does want to create change. That's why he's going to zoom in on your thoughts about him. And in light of that, we will continue to talk about God's commitments here. Week in and week out, promises, because that's what needs to change, the way we think about him. So you say, Mike, I'm kind of confused. You know what? Let's walk together. Keep coming back. We'll continue to talk about who God is because of what Jesus says. And as our minds are transformed, our attitudes are transformed, our lives are transformed, that's the way it works. Can we bow in prayer? Dear Father, we just want to say thank you. And the winds change. Things must be redefined in the new covenant. And we're thankful for the fact that sin has been redefined and you are more concerned about our beliefs about you and you're more committed to do the changing of our beliefs. And we are so thank you for that. We ask that this word goes out. We carry it in our hearts and we carry it to one another. Not only do we carry it, but we reflect it. That what we pay attention to is what people believe about you, and what they believe about themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.